There's a tension that exists in the world of nature-based solutions. Over the last five episodes, we've explored the wide range of benefits they create. From capturing carbon, to building soil health, from developing local economies, to improving local biodiversity, and from strengthening supply chains to building resilience against climate shocks. They demonstrate how intertwined we are with nature and how local context-specific solutions can take on big global challenges. So why aren't nature-based solutions already in the mainstream? Organizations in these three sectors, including related government ministries and departments, whether at national or local levels, or even panchayats, have been doing tremendous, tremendous work over the last 40, 50 odd years. And today, when we think about it, there are shining star examples across the country. You have iconic sort of forestry and uh, tenure projects that have emerged from Mendhalekha in Maharashtra. There is a lot that we know about community conserved areas of the Northeast, including sacred groves. While we don't take away from the achievements of these projects and programs that have been successful, they haven't scaled up. The question is, how do we get those to translate to the large areas that have potential for protection or for restoration? What we need today is really broad-based, scaled-up action. We need organizations to be able to learn, to cross-learn, to think about knowledge sharing and so on. And we need funding to flow in ways that it allows for collaboration. That was Rohini Chaturvedi, an independent researcher and nature-based solutions expert. Rohini raises a critical point. Despite the opportunities that nature-based solutions present in India, many NBS pilots are yet to achieve scale. And this is the central tension of NBS. How do we take solutions that are so context-specific, so dependent on the unique conditions of India's vast and diverse ecosystems and cultures, and find models that can be expanded across the country? While it may seem challenging, it's far from impossible. And it's critical, because if we can do it, we can lead the way for other countries like ours, who need these solutions in the same ways that we do. Here's Shlokanath from the ICC. The ICC's role really is to sort of bridge the incredibly diverse climate ecosystem that exists within India, as well as, of course, globally. It is really seeking to build sort of a very India-specific set of, you know, solutions and narrative around climate for this part of the world, for the global south. Welcome to Second Nature, a new look at India's climate future, a podcast series on the possibilities of nature-based solutions in India. This series is produced by the India Climate Collaborative and Edelgiv Foundation Alliance. In this six-part series, we speak to practitioners, experts, leaders from the private sector and funders to learn how nature-based solutions can play a role in the goals that lie ahead of us. Climate action, community resilience, resource security, and biodiversity conservation. And we ask the important question, 
What kind of collaboration and investment do we need to scale these solutions? In this final episode, we find out what will it take to forge a nature-based future? Episode 6, Forging a Nature-Based Future. Just giving an example, uh, we had this uh, field visit and they said we can plant about a million trees across the mangroves of a particular area. This is Sandeep Roy Chowdhury, the director of VNV Advisory, a social enterprise that creates integrated finance models for climate mitigation and adaptation projects. He's talking about a time when VNV was once asked about a mangrove planting project. But the moment our team reached there, we understood that this is a crocodile habitat. And uh, what they were suggesting was open land on the crocodile beaching area. And crocodile beaching area is beaching area. They sun themselves. So you can't, if you have trees there, it's, it's against the entire concept. Of, it's not natural to, be, to have trees there. But we said no. We definitely said no, this is not happening. In fact, we had a research body that said, no, no, that should be fine. They will find their own space. And that, that really sounded weird to me as if crocodiles need to look for parking spots for themselves now. And that, that just doesn't cut it. It so happened that this red flag wasn't brought to the attention of the next investor. And it became a real issue as the project evolved. But this did not deter the project from being funded. We refused. And, and lo and behold, I think about three months later, we find out that somebody else has funded that program. So obviously that red flag wasn't flagged there. And that's where I think NBS needs to be really careful. Uh, NBS funding needs to be careful about what we end up funding at the end of the day. The outcome of the project was likely to be compromised by this kind of oversight. And unfortunately, many projects suffer for similar reasons. To be an effective nature-based solution, projects need to serve the interest of the communities, ecosystems, and biodiversity first. And evidence-based research is key to ensuring that they do. Evidence-based research is also essential for scale, as it can help integrate nature-based solutions into larger-scale state conservation efforts. Here's Dr. Ravi Babu from NABAD. Unless we validate the findings, unless we do multi-location research and uh, validate the practices and the impacts on the overall economy and ecology, we cannot scale up. Therefore, uh, research, uh, particularly the public research institutes, uh, should come forward to have multi-location trials to validate the natural, nature-based solutions across the country. Research also drives policy. Here's Dr. Anapurna Vancheshwaran from The Nature Conservancy. We need to work diligently, and I'm emphasizing the word diligently, to provide our leaders with the sound science that they need to include conservation consideration in every policy making that they do in their day-to-day -day affairs. While multi-location trials are crucial to test the scalability of a nature-based intervention, we should not lose sight of the particularities of a region, its people and localized issues. One thing is important to understand that nature-based solutions are very, very context-specific. This is Kirti Manawasti from GIZ. The solutions are very localized and it's important to customize those solutions which fits it into that region and also fits into the needs of the communities in that region also. 
and then see that how this framework can be translated into local action a local action which has replication potential which has a scalability potential also for example if we were to develop an agroforestry initiative for a village we would have to take into account the environmental health of the region potential economic co-benefits to the communities needs of livestock and animal husbandry as well as local human health issues because all of these factors play a role in how well the initiative will be able to deliver on its goal moreover financing for nbs is often linked with evidence evidence of success funders want to see clear outcomes within a set period of time and today financing for nbs is still limited and i think nbs as an umbrella term allows us to focus on building that collaboration because we are saying everyone's intervention is important and everyone's goals are equally important but another way to look at it is that nbs itself could be a way to bring people together especially those looking to invest in solutions and pool financial resources The ICC is exploring ways to build collaborative financial capital despite the roadblocks that presently exist. The first step is to utilize CSR funds differently. Because again, land-based nature-based projects, they have long gestation periods. They don't always align with the nature of CSR funds uh, because they have to be expended in the short term. But I think, you know, we're hoping that some of the solutions that we've put down really sort of look to again expand or enable those flexibilities in in how csr funds are used anirban ghosh is the chief sustainability officer of the mahindra and mahindra group of industries he tells us about some challenges that may come up when leveraging csr funds for scale we did a 50 farmer experiment in year 1 it went very well we did a 50 farmer experiment in year 2 and that also went very well and both times we said we are doing this experiment so that we can scale it up in future so a lot of our csr work is like that we're all little experiments proofs of concept this speaks to an important observation normally the kind of projects that csr money is able to fund are repeated small scale pilots but in order to see scale the nature of the project must go beyond its pilot stage and reach a larger number of people Anirban has an interesting approach to how this can be achieved. Usually our proofs of concept are too small. So let's do large proofs of concept. Let's take one problem. Let's come together five people, six people with significant amount of resources available, put it all together and do a very large one. And this is a very interesting model because if we say take a three year period and say let's bring the resources we have to address this problem at scale and let's say it's the water harnessing problem yeah so then the kind of impact we will create uh, is very high because when you do all the structures to harness water they have a life of at least 15 years by pooling resources together to create community assets it's possible to generate greater impact which can then drive climate action for the next decade or more An added benefit is that pooled CSR financing towards a climate solution also garners the attention of other financiers including the government. But using CSR money in a catalytic way would undeniably require corporate partnerships. Something that Anirban believes is missing today. Everybody wants to work in their own space. 
very difficult to do or it was at that time very difficult to do corporate to corporate partnership to implement a community program maybe there are examples now of some corporations coming together to solve one community problem but we could see lot more action there and that would i'm sure help scale the impact that these community projects had The ICC is also committed to finding new pathways that could strengthen the financial landscape of nature-based action. And again, we believe that blended financing can be enabled in many different ways. So again, we believe that the catalytic capital from public or philanthropic sources it really has the potential to increase corporate investment in land-based, you know, nature-based solutions. If public and philanthropic funds can deliver concessional finance and take a first loss position to cover a certain degree of risk associated with NBS, they can potentially pave the way and encourage the private sector to invest. Blended finance can also happen through equity or debt investment in projects where junior equity covers the risk for senior equity to come in. So I would hope that you know different sources of funding that come in in a grant format or as philanthropic funding will view themselves as essential contributors to investment and not just philanthropy right so it should be seen as something that can unlock potentially completely large volumes towards a more green finance in the future Jasmine Dingra from IDH the Sustainable Trade Initiative whom you just heard believes that philanthropy plays a critical role in enabling blended finance. IDH takes a systems approach to their work, which requires convening stakeholders from different sectors with different perspectives, and models like these help bring alignment around common objectives, such as making supply chains more sustainable. As Jasmine points out, funding that brings investors together can offer opportunities to scale up blended finance. it can be used to demonstrate and capture impact in a hard and a measurable and tangible way another idea is a multi donor grant based investment readiness fund that would make nature based solutions more attractive to investors here shloka it could be centered around enhancing the abilities of nature based solution actors to invest in to design reliable and promising solutions and i think these vehicles also really can build in a lot of transparency they can build trust amongst partners as i said most importantly really incentivize greater collaboration to fund and accelerate the adoption of nature based solutions so if we want permanence for us i mean the model that i prefer is really very high capital infusion right up front. Sandeep talked to us about the financial model that's been working at VNV Advisory. When we say agroforestry we have to ensure that the farmer gets getting some livelihood from the trees or whatever that we have planted or have helped plant. One is the element of the produce from the trees itself and then you need to get it to market linkages. There's no point him planting all the mango trees in the world if there's no buyer for the mango so you need to then provide them the buyer for the mango so providing the buyer for the mango means that you need to store mango and then that financial structure needs to be done up front because there's no point giving him a mango storage device after 7 years because by then he might just have cut off the tree so the idea is our structuring is more up front because spending money now actually de-risks the project 
Most investors are hesitant because this kind of arrangement may appear to require a lot of money upfront. But for the model to be successful, we need a paradigm shift in our approach, a rethinking of the traditional idea of financial risk. Outside of philanthropic capital and blended finance, carbon markets are also being considered as a pathway to fund NBS, given the benefits they hold for local communities. Carbon funds work pretty well for NBS projects because there's a huge demand. Actually, if you look at the actual demand cycle of carbon finance, it comes from companies who have net zero targets. Removal offsets are generated from activities that pull carbon out of the atmosphere or are able to avoid future emissions. These can either be through the use of nature to sequester carbon, for example, tree plantations, or through investments in green technologies like renewable energy. And that means that there's a huge demand cycle that is building up on the buy side. So your tech companies to your streaming companies to whatever, you know, at the end of the day, anybody who has a net zero target will need carbon offsets. And then they start funding these programs right now because these offsets are needed in 2030, 35, et cetera. Removal credits take time because you can only get carbon from a tree which is growing and it takes time to grow. So basically the idea is to invest now so that I can get carbon offsets later. That's how this mechanism is inbuilt. As the demand for carbon offsets grows, we need to be cautious about greenwashing. To ensure that offsets are only used for residual emissions where there are no existing low-carbon solutions. There is no alternative to emissions reduction and offsets should not be seen as an easy, low-hanging fruit to replace aggressive decarbonization. However, the market mechanism, if designed well, could potentially provide a model to compensate or recognize the role of the community in being custodians of ecological systems. Here's Kirti Manawasti. It's important to look at this payment plus ecosystem services in two aspects. One, the benefits coming from the ecosystem services without monetizing it in terms of payment. So, and the other aspect is to monetize the benefit coming from interventions which are helping reduce carbon emission. So generating revenue from those initiatives, whether it's through, through forestry initiatives, whether it's through different agriculture practices, whether it's through soil management practices, whether it's also integration of renewable energy into whole nature-based solution for climate co-benefit in terms of mitigation. And using that revenue coming from the carbon sequestration or converting that into carbon credits is something, is one way to look at benefiting communities where this intervention is being implemented. Such initiatives go a long way in making nature-based action investment-ready, and sustainable over a long period of time. It also helps to build capacity on the ground. But there is work to be done. All of these innovative financial models, pooled CSR, blended finance, multi-donor investment readiness fund, carbon markets, and payment for ecosystem services require more effort, research, and policy to reach their promised potential. I think a lot of effort needs to go into it in terms of demonstrating these approaches. And that means it requires additional financing from different instruments. 
it certainly requires mobilizing a lot more public financing. The need of the hour today is unlocking philanthropic capital. We do see the tremendous and catalytic role that philanthropy plays in driving climate action. It's almost like a switch that needs to be turned on here in India. One of its unique capacities is that it has the power to build resilience by helping to consolidate and leverage indigenous wisdom and people's knowledge. You know, there was this tiny project in Meghalaya, basically because of the rains, one of the rivers really overflows during monsoon and it's been eating up land every year now. And one of the schools is actually going to drown very soon. And there's a particular species that if you plant can actually retain the soil, you know, called vetiver. But it was too tiny for us to look at. I mean, we did it more as a social expense, but not everybody would, right? But those are these little pockets of NBS, I think, that need to be seriously also looked at and probably aggregated over a period of time. Because these are really impactful, effective, small community-based solutions which actually need a lot of attention. And I don't think governments will pay them that attention. And I don't think larger funds, so to speak, will pay the attention to that because the transaction size that's required of a fund and all of that is much, much higher. The kind of capital that is required, you know, the kind of capital that is patient, flexible, long-term, that can speak to incredibly sort of complex issues is really philanthropic capital. And so we really seek to bring that in as a major driver for climate action in India. Philanthropic capital shows its promise in being able to go where public funding, private funding or multi-donor funds cannot go. As Shloka says, it has the power to shape a climate future that recognizes the immense value of nature-based solutions. But there is also something else to keep in mind. Pranab Chaudhary from the Baitarani Initiative. Whenever any new idea comes, we are always very keen to scale up and scale wide very fast. I would say it is not always possible, particularly in the kind of product we are dealing with, you know, agroecological solutions, be it in agriculture or forest ecological solutions, be it in wild collections. They are pretty painful long-term investments. And they are critical because they really nourish the forests. The narrative around solutions for climate change can often feel very removed from our deeper connection with nature. Much of what we read and listen to is focused on the numbers we need to achieve, like 1.5 degrees, or percentage targets of renewable energy and emissions intensity. It's not an electric car, it's not a battery, it's not a solar panel. It is an ecosystem and it is the very basis of life. So if nature is thriving, that means that it has the power to heal a lot of the systems around us that we currently have been either ignoring or that we have thrown into disarray as a result of our own negligence or ignorance. At the center of this movement is a simple message. Our lives are connected to the fate of our planet. And no matter how urbanized our civilizations become, nature will always form the core of our being. Nature is regeneration, healing and sustenance. Supporting nature means supporting ourselves. If we want to stop climate change, to safeguard our future, to protect our people, we must remember that nature is one of our greatest allies.
thanks to Shloka Nath, Rohini Chaturvedi, Sandeep Roy Chowdhury, Dr. Anupurna Vancheshwaran, Dr. Ravi Babu, Kirtimana Wasti, Anirban Ghosh, Jasmir Dingra, and Pranab Chowdhury. This podcast is produced by the India Climate Collaborative, Edelgiv Foundation Alliance. For more information on the India Climate Collaborative and its work on nature-based solutions, or to read a copy of the report, please visit indiaclimatecollaborative.org. You can also follow the ICC on LinkedIn at India Climate Collaborative. Thank you.